Hey folks, it's David. We have a pretty cool episode of Abstract to share with you today, which is a rebroadcast of an event sponsored by the Committee for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and the VCU School of Education. The event was titled Racial Disproportionality, School Discipline, and Future Directions, a Community Conversation, and it took place on February 6, 2017, on campus at Virginia Commonwealth University. The purpose of the event was to bring together stakeholders from educational research, K-12 education, and the juvenile justice system to talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. We wanted to have a conversation about the evidence suggesting that black students are more likely to be suspended or expelled from school than their white peers, and what we could do about it as a community. As it turns out, there were a lot of people interested in having that exact conversation, and the room filled up with people from throughout the metropolitan Richmond community who were invested in addressing this issue. We learned a lot from each other, and we want to share that conversation with you. Today, you'll hear from each of our presenters to get their take on racial disproportionality in school discipline. We had researchers, poets, and local advocates share their unique perspectives, and in the end, I think we got a pretty well-rounded picture of what we need to do to address inequities in the ways we discipline our students. Once they're finished, you'll hear from three people who were at the event and sat down to talk with me about what brought them there and what they were taking from it. I hope that hearing their stories, along with the information shared by our presenters, will help bring you into this critical conversation about race and school discipline. From Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, this is Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium, where we explore issues in education. Glad to be with you. Our first presenters were Kira Lee and Zenobia Bay. Kira is a second-year PhD student in the VCU School of Education and a native of Richmond, and Zenobia is a mental health counselor and local youth advocate. Kira and Zenobia both had some spoken word poetry to share with the audience and kick off our conversation for the evening. First, you'll hear from Kiera, then Zenobia. Hello, son. Looking forward to the day that we meet. But before we do, let me give you the word on the street. Word on the street is society doesn't value your life as much, but if I warn you now, maybe we can prepare. Maybe it won't be so rough. You will always be the king of my heart with your African features and your skin so dark. Darker than the skin of most people you'll see in this land of the free (laughs) that still (laughs) ain't free. You will be a king, but still look at as a slave, seen as rambunctious and uneducated and unable to behave. And when you walk around, women may grab their bags thinking your lot in life is to take, take all that they have. And the men, many will be intimidated by your smarts, your strength, and your power, and your ability in the arts. I know, I know some, this is all starting to paint an ugly picture, but don't worry. I'm here to work with you. We'll work on your education and college. I'll get you there. But first, you must learn how to navigate the school halls because even there, it is not fair. But that's okay because no matter what people do or what people say, nobody can ever, ever, ever take your education away. You'll have to watch what you say and watch what you wear, the hats on your head and how you wear your hair because certain looks and certain words can kill. Like your brother Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, and your brother in the I write this to warn you, but please, son, don't stress. These ills have been around, and, and you're not even here yet, but I have a plan, and God does too, and you will fearlessly live your life with all the fruits given to you. But first, I must finish my education and learn all I can to make a better situation, and then the day will come, and I'll meet someone, and me and a strong man will become one, and that strong man will be your dad, and he'll be so glad, and he'll be so happy, happy to teach you everything he can about being yourself, about being a man. Although this world may not welcome you with warm, open arms, son, don't be discouraged, and don't be alarmed, because you will always be the king of my heart with your African features and your skin so dark. Thank you. has written a children's book about racial discrimination titled Light Skin, Dark Skin, or In Between, and another about parental incarceration titled Be a Man, Tyrone, What Happens When Daddy Goes to Prison. 
Her blog is theblackertheberry.org, and her t-shirt line, hashtag schoolgirlhustle, promotes girls and women staying in school. Next up is Zenobia Bay. She shared a spoken word poem with us inspired by her work with local youth. Here she is. How many of you ever sat and watched television with your mind stressing about your daily living? With the remote one hand would hope to find something interesting. Well, if any of you know me, you would know my passion is children. Understanding the mental and physical development is a blessing to observe and witness. But on this night, as I flipped and flipped and flipped, with one hand steady and bent, and the other catching my locks, I flip and I watch and my heart stops. From an image of a seven-year-old child not running wild from truancy or wanting to be a hustler or disrespecting her mother or choosing to be influenced by the music on the radio, I have to let y'all know, she wasn't from the ghetto, but she was from the slums. But we think in America we have bums, the slums of a third-world country, and from all this pain, I forgot to mention she was hungry. As I sat, I got full and fat off the fact that through all that, her face appeared and she was cool with that. See, no complaining or whining about a sore back. None of that. As I put the remote down, the drum set in my heart began to pound, and she sat on the ground in a blazing terrain, not knowing that she would ever eat again. And she banged. See, not with the game, because she banged rocks. See, not rocks to move packs to allow money to stack, and she banged rocks with a hammer, patiently, to gain money to feed her family. You see, the word choice is not in her vocabulary. The word hustler is now an understatement. And she continued to bang and bang and fragments from the pavement and toward the donkey sky. But they landed in her eye. And she is hot. See, not from, hot from cash or selling ash. You see the sun, the sun beams and the sweat streams off her face. And as I watch this, I now have tears. And it's like we're in a race. And our images are now identical. Her face from sweat, mine from cries, and I'm blessed because my room temperature is somewhat comfortable. And the thought emerges. What are you stressed for? As she continued to bang and bang and don't complain about the dangerous pavement, as the night fall another day came she went without enough money to help her mother, father, and three siblings to feed the hunger pains that are calling. But she can't answer. So I can't take no more. So my left hand is like a lock to a key to a door, and as I remove it from my head, it's now unsecure and free to write. So I free write. This poem that would have punctured your heart. If any of you ever sold, you would have felt it from the start. But sometimes we live life in the cart. Just pushing through life and shopping for unnecessary wants and being impatient, time-wasted, ungrateful nations. But this child is too weak for complaining. And while we're strong enough to see our own goals and targets, we're too lazy to shoot or follow it. So I write and I pray. And my tears are now enough to make a pool. And this child's only weak words are, I just want to go to school. Zenobia is also a Richmond native. She goes by Z. Bay the Poet as a recording artist and just released a single called Coping with Poison, which addresses depression in our community and dealing with life through art. Coping with Poison can be found online at CD Baby. Next up is Dr. Genevieve Siegel-Holly. You may remember from our first episode of Abstract discussing the racial disproportionality in school discipline Merck study that Dr. Siegel-Holly is one of the co-principal investigators. She's an assistant professor of educational leadership at VCU, and she shared some of the research from the Merck study, framing this as both a local and national issue. Here she is. So we are looking at a near doubling of annual suspensions over the last several decades, in part because of the rise in zero-tolerance policies. Um, every day, about 19,000 students are suspended from school. Richmond Public Schools is about 25,000 kids, just as a point of comparison. Um, the total days that kids lose instruction per year because of those suspensions amount to over 12 million. Black children represent 18% of the preschool enrollment and 48% of the preschoolers who are suspended. Virginia's black students are suspended at more than three times the rate of Virginia's white students. And disruption or other subjective categories are most often um, the offenses that black students are overrepresented um, in. So these are, you know, going back to that cultural piece, suspensions that are in the eye of the beholder. Here's what that looks like as far as numbers in Virginia. 
This is from the Just Children Report last year. So um, the, the points of comparison are 23% of Virginia's enrollment is black, and about 51% of Virginia's enrollment is white. Um, and so that's your point of comparison, and you'll see that black students are overrepresented in every category of suspension, short-term, long-term, and expulsion, and that white students are dramatically underrepresented. It's always dangerous to talk about a legal definition when there are lawyers on the panel, panel so I'll offer <laughs> any questions about this to them. Um, but as we were thinking about how to formulate our study, um, we, were, we were talking about the relative risk ratio. That's one of our measures, and I'm going to show you a map in a few minutes that will help illustrate this for you. But basically, the relative risk ratio tells you um, how much more likely black students are to be suspended than white students or whatever the comparison group is. Um, and when you're thinking about racial disproportionality in school discipline, three core questions should be asked. One is, is there a racially adverse and disparate impact on students? And you can get at that by some of those numbers I just showed you. Is the suspension or punishment educationally necessary? And are there effective alternatives that would yield the same results? When you're talking about racial disproportionality, it's important to recognize that race does play a role. There have been quantitative studies that show that discipline disparities persist even when you control for a number of other factors, including poverty. Um, part of that is because of the cultural mismatch between white teachers and kids of colors. White teachers make up 80% of the teaching force, and white students make up just over half of our nation's school enrollment, and that's a big mismatch. White students are also the most segregated students in US schools. So the typical white student goes to a school that's about three-quarters white, even though white students make up half of the enrollment. And that has its perpetuating effect because the, the students who grow up to be white teachers have often gone to schools where they've had very little exposure to students um, that don't look like them. And so sometimes the first time they're experiencing that is in the classroom when they're in a position of power. Another way we can see the role of race in disproportionality is in those um, differences in the reasons behind why students are referred to the office. So the subjective categories tend to um, be the categories where black students are overrepresented. Things like um, oppositional behavior or defiance, uh, which again is in the eye of the beholder. And then this comes out, this last point comes out of an interesting qualitative study, it was actually a mixed study, of a racially diverse high school that was trying to understand what structures in the school contributed to disproportionality. And one of the things the researchers found um, through interviews and through surveys was that school administrators anticipated hyper-involvement of white parents who would come up to the school if their child got in trouble and say, um, listen, you know, he or she was just being a kid. Can we get this off the record? We've got colleges that we're thinking about. And even if it wasn't every white parent that came up to the school to, to do that, the intensity of some of those requests had this deterrent effect on the administration. So they were less likely to follow through with the severe punishment for the white students. So all of those things contribute to racial disproportionality and discipline. There are many negative consequences of disproportionality, as I'm sure you are aware of. It contributes to the racial achievement gap. We often talk about the achievement gap um, in these black and white terms around test scores, and we forget about what contributes to it, what goes into it. Uh, it increases subsequent antisocial behavior. The kids start feeling disconnected from the school. They feel like they can't trust people in the school, that they haven't been treated fairly. Um, that, in turn, leads to animosity between students and authority figures. It can perpetuate disengagement and has been shown to increase dropout rates. That's surely not what our goal should be in the schools. Another big piece of this is that it contributes to the school-to-prison pipeline. So students who are suspended or expelled for a subjective infraction, again, are almost three times more likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system in the following year. Um, and then over a kid's lifetime, that engagement with the criminal justice system increases our costs as a society. That's the background. Here's what we're trying
trying to do with this study. The first thing we want to do is try to understand what the relationship is between uh, the school and district racial and economic makeup and disparities of discipline. The second question is what's the landscape of school discipline models across the metro? This has surfaced as a really big issue in the last few years and districts and schools are doing different things to try to address racial disproportionality. So we're sending out a survey to all area school administrators that are asking about a range of things, but one of them is what kind of discipline intervention model do you have in place? And maybe they don't have one, but we're at least going to try to figure that out. Then we're going to match that up with the numbers and see if we see different trends for schools who are trying um, various interventions and their discipline disparities over time. Um, and finally, we're going to try to understand what community factors are related to discipline disproportionality. The first one is each uh, dot represents a school in the metropolitan area. Um, and the bigger the dot, the bigger the percentage of black students in the enrollment. So a big dot has a black student body that's between 67 and 97.8% black. And you see real patterns of um, segregation, racial segregation for black students in the metropolitan area that are particularly concentrated in Richmond and Petersburg, but also along the central and eastern part of Henrico and down the whole street corridor in, um, in Chesterfield. So each dot is a school, and the dot represents the percentage of black students in the school who have been suspended. So the biggest dot represents a school where 32, between 32 and 90% of the black students in the school have been suspended. You'll see that black students have a high risk of being suspended in, in some of the Petersburg schools, in some of our Richmond schools, and then somewhat tracking along the percentage of black students in the schools for the county. So here's the percentage of black students in the school, and there's the percentage of black students suspended in the school. Okay, this last slide looks different. The big dots move to the western part of the metro where you have a, a, um, smaller numbers of black students in schools. This is the relative risk <laughs> ratio for black students compared to all non-black students. The biggest dot represents schools where black students are seven to 11 times more likely to be suspended than students who are not black. It's a huge risk, a relative risk ratio. These are schools where black students don't make up a huge percentage of the population, but they are far, far more likely to be suspended in those sites. So that's the tip of the iceberg. Um, we've got a survey going out soon. We're working on more maps, um, more numbers. These are from 2011 from the Civil Rights Data Collection, and we're hoping to get a lot more data from the state. Thank you. Siegel Holly is another Richmond native whose research focuses on examining school segregation and resegregation in U.S. metropolitan areas, along with strategies for promoting inclusive school communities and policy options for a truly integrated society. She's author of When the Fences Come Down, 21st Century Lessons from Metropolitan School Desegregation. Next up is Dr. Bill Muth, an associate professor in the Department of Teaching and Learning at VCU. Dr. Muth conducts research in the local prison system and served as an educator in the federal prison system for 25 years prior to coming to VCU. Here he is. Currently, in the United States at least, incarcerated parents tend to be treated like pariahs. When they come home, they are barred from education and housing, assistance, work, and even the right to vote. They are offered limited treatment and continuous surveillance. Two-thirds return to prison in three years, most for a parole violation, and most are people of color. We lock up millions of disenfranchised people, shattering their families and communities, and enlist blind justice to convict them. But here, conviction, of course, has an aspect of legitimacy. Most did commit crimes. Most have criminal records. Most have harmed others, whether direct or indirect. In Foucauldian terms, the criminal justice system doesn't convict in the dark, but rather floods us with too much light, rap sheets, sensational news coverage, reams of litigation, empirical evidence, graphic body images. But the light itself limits what we can see. We are blinded by too much light, 
ubiquitous images that make it self-evident that people in prison are one-dimensional criminals and that families are better off without them. They're, they're thick prison files that foreground risk factors, defects, pathologies, prior crimes, recent infractions, the mind-numbing statistics on abandoned families that render the state sanction of disrupting families as tolerable, the splitting of the world into victims and to perpetrators, the profiling of young visitors in visiting rooms as criminals in the making. These, in this light, we see prisoners as bad parents, time as hopelessly vast, and family presence as deferred to a time in the future, far, far away. Um, programs like Hope House allow us to puncture this light to see incarcerated parents and their families in a different light. Hope House nurtures the bond between incarcerated fathers and children and their children through things like video conferencing, book taping programs, um, uh, prison-based summer camps. And these camps are filled uh, with literacy activities like journaling and also a large mural event where the fathers and the children in each family makes a large six foot by 12 foot mural. And the murals generate stories. And the stories can sustain relationships until the next phone call or until the next visit or email or the next Skype. They, and as we'll see in a minute, these stories and these experiences can punctuate that blinding light, that common sense way of seeing about families and fathers and belonging and time itself. How? Um, through art. Vivian Gadsden, Vivian Gadsden says about art, where oppression and marginalization have been the order of the day for children and their families, the arts take on new urgency. As diverse communities of learners are invited into conversations about what counts as knowledge. So what does this new knowledge, this new life, what might it look like? Well, um, it looks unhurried. It looks communal. It looks playful. It looks aligned. It looks unpredictable. As families design murals early in the week, this is a week-long summer camp. It takes them a week to go to make this. Right away from day one, something is off. There's an intimacy, a normalcy, an unprescribed curriculum um, that allows space for families to wander off uh, and to escape um, even difficult conversations with each other. Uh, there's a surface that one can skate across, but then you can fall through the ice when a daughter asks a question unexpectedly, like, when are you coming home? Um, so this new way of thinking, this new light, is sometimes also a new way of being. That asks, not are we doing, but who am I being? Who am I in this moment, on this floor, this visiting room, as a father, or as a son, or as a daughter? And this shift from doing to being opens up new insights about, for instance, time. Like past, present, and future has a, a new way of, of grasping it. For example, past. Um, Josie, this is um, Josie's last memory of her father six years ago before, the last time she saw her father before this camp, and they were in a swimming pool together. And this was a memory she was clinging to, which was fading, fading. And this, um, this revivified that past. It brought it back to the present. Um, in the present, um, here, Will is worried that if he doesn't tell his daughter that she's beautiful, she'll go to the street and find out for herself. Mm. So he's working with his daughter uh, in, in, in the present. Mm. And in the future, so Ivy and Ike um, are telling each other, reaffirming for each other, as Sharon and Charles, that we can achieve the future together. So in addition to reimagining past, presents, and futures, the mural is about belonging, rewriting a family narrative. Uh, Kristen Perry, talking about Salman Rushdie, says becoming part of the family involves learning family stories. Families are about storytelling, and stories are a badge of family membership. Moments of deep contact that happen during camp have echoes that remain present during stretches of absence. 
families build on the intimacy rekindled again and carry these shared memories forward into phone calls that used to be just awkward airtime with nothing to say. Or if they had a book that was sent home on tape and they're talking about how much they enjoyed the story or what that story meant. Through Hope House, family presence is nurtured throughout the year through a lot of things, but partly through events like the November mural show. Uh, here is a picture of Kiara and her mother, Brenda, at the November mural show where Kiara read from her book, Be a Man Tyrone. It was a beautiful event. But behind them, not to take away from them because they're amazing, but behind them is a mural that is from the summer camp that we have a high school that, um, that doesn't that curates them and, and hands them off to the event. So these, um, mural, the neural show becomes a place where the kids can reunite. Um, and again, it's part of this collective momentum that helps um, this, to sustain this new kind of relationship, this new kind of scene. Um, so what, what I'm arguing, what I'm finding is that families do not have to be absent while separated by prison, if resources are there and if society cares enough. Um, prison time does not have to be always oppressively vast. When visits and phone calls in the next summer camp or a book coming in the mail, as well as warm and joyful memories can punctuate and, uh, the past or, or those long stances of time and um, make the past and future accessible in the present, it changes everything, and it, and it does, in terms of the weight of time for these kids. So if, if, the, if the discourse of criminal justice is this blinding light of, that makes parents in prisons one-dimensional, the gaze of a child into a parent is the, probably the most potent light to shine against it. Because children have the capacity to see the good and the wholeness of their parents, as most parents, even those in prison, see the good in the homes of their children. But still, real-time family programs are hard for a society to get our mind around. However, in Sweden, for instance, every prison has an ombudsman that advocates for the child during a parent's case management meetings. In Finland, children have a right to regular contact with their parents, and prisons are obligated to support the parent in the performance of day-to-day childhood. So skeptics and advocates should still support Hope House. This is a shameless plug. <laughs> and anecdotally, of the 200 or so families that have gone to camp since 2001, um, all but one of the children that we know of have stayed in school, most have gone on to college. Of the, of the 98 fathers uh, 19, that have been out of prison for three years since they did a summer camp, only 19 have returned to the federal system. We're still working through uh, that study, but anecdotally, that's pretty encouraging. Anyway, statistics, right? <laughs> Last slide. Um, here, and this is sort of hard to see, so way at the top, leaning over is Mali, and up like, behind his rump is a giant eagle. Um, we don't know if it's menacing or friendly. And then, way, and then um, his father, Theo, but above his head are two eagles way off in the distance, coming in. They're, we know that they're coming this way. So in this slide, Malik is reaching out to his father, who's falling backward off the cliff. An eagle is swooping down behind him, and others are fast approaching. Theo is also reaching out towards Malik. Will Malik be able to catch his father before he falls? Are the eagles friendly or antagonistic? Malik is impossibly empowered. Powerful act of imagination, nevertheless, that accurately surmises their tenuous grip on families and the ambivalent nation that's hovering above them and on all sides. Through their art, families begin healing themselves, punctuating excruciating light with a soft possibility of something better. Dr. Muth is the co-founder and research editor of the Open Access Journal of Prison Education and Reentry. He also serves on the board of directors for Hope House, a program that helps families separated by prison to maintain and cultivate meaningful real-time relationships. You can check out their work at hopehousedc.org. Our final presenters are local advocates for youth in the Richmond community. 
Gina Lyles is the program coordinator for Art 180's Youth Self-Advocacy Through Art program, known as the Performing Statistics Project. Art 180 provides opportunities for young people to express themselves through art and to share their stories with others. Gina is a poet, singer, host, and MC known as DA Paper Lady. Rachel Dean is a staff attorney with the Just Children program at the Legal Aid Justice Center, where her work focuses on dismantling the school-to-prison pipeline and ensuring that every child has the opportunity to learn. They came together to share stories from local youth involved in the juvenile justice system, with a specific focus on letting them speak for themselves through videos and spoken word. We will play you the audio from each of these videos, but I definitely would encourage you to take a look at their website at performingstatistics.org to get the full effect. Okay, here's Gina and Rachel. Um, so you look at the program, my name is Gina Lyles, Maria Bomi. I'm actually here to bring the youth voices in the room. I work with the formerly incarcerated youth and youth that are incarcerated currently right now in Bonnier's United Detention Center and also Richmond City Detention Center. Um, I actually uh, work at Art with a program coordinator there. They have an eight-week summer intensive program where we actually, the youth are transported from the detention center to Art with AD and we connect them with the best artists in the city to create their own mediums to try to transform and change policies around the school to prison pipeline. So I'll give y'all one statistic before I start showing videos and introducing my colleague here. Um, so Virginia is number one leading the nation incarcerating youth on um, citizens of school prison pipeline. Number one in the United States. Um, we need to change that culture. So this is why we do this work. So I'm Hi, I'm Rachel Dean. I'm an attorney with the Just Children program of the Legal Aid Justice Center. We're a statewide legal services and impact litigation organization. <laughs> And the Just Children program focuses on um, bringing cases that defend the rights of students with disabilities and students of color in schools. Uh, we are a partner with, one, uh, with Art 180 and the Performing Statistics Project. We work with the kids as well over the summers uh, to help them know their rights uh, to education in the juvenile justice system and to know their rights uh, in the schools as well. Um, we really want to let the kids speak during this presentation, um, but after each video, I'm going to try to provide a little bit of context um, so that you see the entire scope and length of the school to prison pipeline and try to present some alternatives, both on the school side and the prison side, uh, that can keep kids in their communities and give kids the tools they need to be successful. So again, um, Performance Statistics is a youth self-advocacy program where we actually encourage the youth to be um, not only just encourage the community, but also be in leadership positions and be advocates for other youth and their peers. I'm 15 years old. I am strong. I'm 15 years old. I am willing. I am 15 years old. I am dedicated. I'm 15 years old. I have brothers and sisters. I'm 15 years old. I want to help my mom. I'm 15 years old, and no one will have me. You can't work here. You cannot work here, sir. Sorry, we're not having you. Can't work here. You 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 can't work here. I'm 15 years old. I need a job. So um, these art pieces uh, are the result of a question uh, that Art 180 asked the kids this past summer, which is what uh, would it take to keep you out of school prison pipeline? What are alternatives for you? Um, so we know that youth of color are disproportionately impacted and more likely to be swept up into the school prison pipeline, and particularly more likely to be incarcerated for offenses that take place in school. Um, we know that during the 2014-15 school year here in the city of Richmond Public Schools, um, African-American students received 93% of all short-term suspension. That's 10 days or fewer. Um, and we know that um, court, uh, excuse me, uh, youth of color who are um, processed through intake into the court system make up only 43% of court intakes, but they account for 70% of the commitments into the juvenile justice system. Um, so they're disproportionately represented both in school-based offenses and uh, in commitments to youth prisons. Uh, one alternative that we see uh, to locking kids up is providing them with career technical training, uh, the, the, what, what Anderson uh, or Kay Anderson referred to, giving them opportunities to start building the skills they need to be productive members of the workplace uh, is, is, a, is an alternative to locking them up. It will help me 
so I can have that bond with a, with a male. Like, if you growing up without a male, like, there's certain things that your mama can't teach you that a father figure can. So it's important to have a male role model. That's why we should have more big brothers and big sisters program. Not just for males, for s girls too, female. It should be a person that is as similar as you, especially if he from the projects and he succeeded and he, he's making money, he got a job, he got a family and kids. He could show you the ropes and lead you to success. No person isn't in my life, but if he was, it would be a better outcome for myself. So this youth speaks to the power of having a mentor in his life, the power of having someone who is interested in his development and, and, and showing care for him. Um, what we know is that the juvenile justice system does a horrible job of providing that type of social and emotional support for our youth. Um, what we know is that 78.3% of youth are rearrested within 36 months of being released from a juvenile prison in Virginia. They're simply not learning the skills they need to survive while they're in youth prison. One alternative is uh, formal youth mentoring and advocacy organizations. We have one of those right here in Richmond. It is a result of the partnership between Art 180 and Legal Aid Justice Center. It's called the Youth for Rise Advocacy Network. It's for youth ages 13 to 24 in Richmond who have been involved in the juvenile justice system. They get together for advocacy and community organizing trainings. They have mentorship and education opportunities. And they take those skills and they use them to speak to those in power. Uh, they were at the General Assembly about two weeks ago talking about their experiences. Uh, and they do receive a stipend for participation in the program. So that's just one example of an alternative mentorship program that can keep kids up. Put my headphones on, it all goes silent. It's important for me to block out the noise because I find peace. I find my safe space on the basketball court. That's where I am and that's where I need to be. to, or at least what I think he's referring to, is trauma and adverse childhood experiences. He refers to his mental health in that video. Um, what we know is that uh, children who have experienced uh, adverse uh, trauma in their lives are much more likely to be swept into the school to prison pipeline, and that the overuse of exclusionary discipline uh, is absolutely detrimental to kids who have experienced trauma. It does absolutely the opposite of what we would want uh, them to, to have. Um, you can uh, go read entire books about uh, trauma-informed education and trauma-informed care. It's a really hot topic in the legal and the education community right now. Uh, so I will educate you on that at the moment. There's just no time. Um, but we do know that alternatives to suspension and exclusion, including social and emotional learning programs that account to the child as a holistic person, work, uh, and they keep kids from being swept up into the school prison pipeline. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and listen to this. I am powerful. I live a lifestyle that nobody knows. People shooting guns with light from the sun. Where I'm from, we don't have a sky or enough high school graduates. I was surrounded by potheads, but realized they were just kids like me. In and out of these brick walls, but light is all I want to see. Just because I'm from the bricks doesn't mean I don't fit in college getting a degree. I'm smarter than you think. I'm 16, 15, 14 years old. I am not a criminal. I am not an animal. I am powerful. 
When I was growing up, my neighborhood sounded like police sirens. Smelled like old piss and felt like a place with no hope. But it shouldn't be where you are from, but where you want to be. Give me freedom, and I bet I'll succeed. If I had a superpower, it would be to save people from dying. To take my mom's cancer away. If justice transformed, I would be doing work instead of time. You'd hear me say we need freedom for unity. You'd see what I did as an outlet instead of a crime. Teach me math, science, science reading, and, and language arts. Believe that, that I am powerful. And I will become something one day. I am outspoken. And I cannot be broken. I am not ashamed of who I am. Believe, believe me. me. Believe, believe me. Believe me. I am powerful. 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 The Just Children program at the Legal Aid Justice Center is Virginia's largest children's law program with a specific focus on helping vulnerable students get what they need to be productive citizens. You can check out their work at justice, the number four, all.org. The Performing Statistics program works with youth trapped in the school-to-prison pipeline to sharpen their advocacy and leadership skills, share their experiences through creative expression, and mobilize communities for change. You can check out their work and listen to more powerful testimonies from their students at performingstatistics.org. Our program concluded with a question and answer session with our presenters, moderated by Evandra Catherine, a PhD student studying special education and disability policy at VCU, who you heard on our first episode of Abstract. For the sake of time, we won't play you that audio, but the conversation that ensued between the audience and our presenters generated a call for action. We all pretty much agreed that just coming together and talking about this stuff doesn't do much good if we don't also do something about it. And so we wrapped up for the evening. It took a while for the auditorium to clear. People hung back to talk with each other and share their stories about what brought them there and what they plan to do next to affect change. I had the chance to speak with Gerard, Derek, and Tony. We each had very different perspectives to share about racial disproportionality. First was Gerard Hines, a fourth-year marketing student with a Spanish minor. It was interesting to see Gerard there because this was an event sponsored by our School of Education, and he wasn't majoring in education or public policy or anything that seemed to be directly related to this topic. But his presence there was evidence that this conversation goes beyond just schools. There could be widespread impact across the community. Here's what he had to say. Um, this is something that was really interesting to me when uh, I actually heard about it through the VCU Telegram. Um, go Rams <laughs> but it's something that I'm studying alongside of my major and my minor um, when I heard about the the forum and the discussion um, I was like really excited and put it in my schedule um, I really want to learn about how to initiate change and even though I'm in business it's not necessarily geared towards psychology or education um, or even specifically with any cultural studies. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever I do in my career, uh, I really want it to be geared towards um, helping initiate change, that I, I don't want to be um, a bystander in not only the struggle that... Well, we were mainly talking about African-Americans today, mm-hmm. um, from the part at least that I, I was able to be a part of. Um, but even other minorities um, and and even outside of race, you know, um, mm-hmm. there's so many different uh, issues within uh, our world, especially with our nation. And uh, when I heard about the forum, I was like, man, I, I really want to just have any more advice or any more insight on how I can be using even my business degree to be a part of creating some change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What's your takeaway that you'll take from this for make, making some change in the community moving forward? Um, humility was a big one. Um, there was there's so many like different things thrown around like I, IEP. I'm like, Whoa. It's a lot you of know. acronyms. Man, I'm yeah. glad she asked that question because I was like, I was thinking it. I know I'm sure everyone, but there's a lot of stuff, and I was like, man. Um, Humility and collaboration, I would say, because I loved how even the older guys were asking, like, and help, you know, like, uh, what are you guys doing, you know, and how can we, so I think my biggest takeaway 
I know it's kind of two things, but those are kind of like my my combination, especially with like collaboration. You know? mm-hmm. Like you need to have that perspective if you want to actually create some change. Next, I spoke with Derek Rogers. Derek had been incarcerated three times in his lifetime. He discussed from personal experience how he became disengaged from school, how that contributed to his ultimate involvement in the criminal justice system, and the perspective that he's gained on the other side of that struggle. Here he is. When I was in school, the teachers used to put my desk in the hallway for asking too many questions. Hmm. And they considered me a rebel, even though I just had an open mind and I wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. But when I took the different, um, I guess you call them, state board tests for Mm -hmm. intellectual capacity, I always had a high IQ. Mm -hmm. But they never put me in the gifted classes because they considered me a rebel and a troublemaker. So I know what it's like to deal with certain um, being, being mistreated. But at the young age, I didn't think about it as racism. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But it yeah. could have been. It's like a cultural mismatch almost. Right? Yes. Like teachers not realizing where somebody's coming from whenever they're asking questions. Yes, because most of the gifted students at that time at this particular school were Asians and white. Hmm. But I never thought about it as racism. But it could have been. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. if I was in the gifted class, maybe I could have went to college. But instead, I ended up hating school. Hmm. How common do you think that story is? I, I know it's very common because I volunteered at the prison here in the area, Bonaire, mm-hmm. and most of the boys in there told me their stories and how they were misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Then they would get angry, and then they would buck the system. And yeah. that's exactly what I did back in 1994 because hmm. I ended up being incarcerated three different times. Can you talk about that? Yeah, being incarcerated, it was the problem with it is it, when I got there, it felt comfortable mm-hmm. because there was a pathology that was developed. Because once you become a rebel, you surround yourself with other rebels. Then you surround yourself with rebel music. Then you immerse yourself in rebel media. So it became normal. When I went to jail, I was I felt like I belonged there. Mm. And the rest of us felt like we belonged there. And that's 90% of the problem. Mm. And when it was time for me to get out, I'm supposed to be happy, but I had an anxiety knowing I didn't want to leave. Because mm-hmm. I had structure with other rebels, and we were comfortable. Mm. And that's also what I write about in my books. Yeah, um, and you were saying that you didn't really feel like you belonged in school, even though I mean your IQ was high. Yeah, right? they, you're you're capable. I, just I wasn't a, it just wasn't matching up. No, sir. I developed a mistrust for authority, hmm. and I devalued the school system. Hmm. And when my first son was born, I was teaching him to buck the system and get what you can get out of it and use them instead of understanding you can't beat the system in this country. Mm-hmm. At some point, you have to learn how to submit but still achieve your own personal goals. Mm-hmm. But I had to go through a whole process of transformation to understand that. Yeah. So you said that you were in prison three separate times? Yes. Okay. Twice what? in Newport News and once in Atlanta. Okay. Um, what eventually helped you break that cycle and get out of there? Well, my cycle broke because of my faith. Mm-hmm. I always did believe in God. And when we're dealing with crime and violence and pathologies, you also have to not eliminate the soul and the spirit. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that's not mentioned enough. Mm-hmm. So my soul on the inside knew there was something else. Hmm. And that longing would keep me up at night. And I read thousands of books, studied every religion, trying to find out, okay, if there's a God, why is this going on in my life? Mm-hmm. So it was my faith that brought me through. It wasn't the jail. It wasn't the prison. It wasn't the streets. It wasn't my mom and dad. It wasn't my wife. It was my faith. Because hmm. my, my soul was still hungry for something. Yeah, and That's one thing that gets neglected because of science and money and different people just don't talk about it enough. Mm-hmm. So we end up drowning it with different drugs, and that's where the drugs come in. Mm-hmm. We're trying to kill that soul and that conscience. Yeah, so what's it like to be on this side of things and to be able to have that perspective of knowing what it was like to be in prison and to see how that trajectory maybe started whenever you were in school yes. and not being recognized for the talent that you had? Seeing it from the outside, I feel like I can help somebody if I'm given the opportunity, mm-hmm. but now I also have to learn the system, but I also see what's going on with the system. Mm-hmm. There's so many hands involved with different mentalities. It's almost like the federal government. When you have a thousand people trying to turn the boat and steer the ship, it mm-hmm. takes might take 20 years to steer. But that doesn't mean those hundred people are wrong. Mm-hmm. Those hundred people just have to learn how to come together on one idea and agree. But that takes multiple pathologies learning how to agree, and that's just not easy. Do you think events like today help with that, or is there more that needs to be done? These events help, but mm-hmm. these events also highlight what else we need. Hmm. Because I wanted to talk about funding. Because me and my wife have three ideas we wanted to get going. Hmm. We just need to learn how to get the funding and the permission and community help. What are your ideas? My wife wants to do a job readiness for women. She worked at HR in Petersburg. Hmm. And she saw women come in 
for interviews and to get jobs, but they weren't dressed correctly. Some of them had like eight inch fingernails. They were dressed as they were going to nightclubs, but unprofessional. Mm-hmm. And most of them didn't even know how to do the applications online. Hmm. So they don't have, they need job readiness skills. How to do an application, how to dress for an interview, how to show up on time, mm-hmm. how not to walk in smelling like smoke. Mm-hmm. So she wanted to do job readiness because she saw this every day for months. Mm-hmm. My program was, I want to do a writing program. Mm-hmm. So I started a publishing company and I want to help other young men and women express themselves but in a positive manner. Everybody wants to be a rapper. Mm-hmm. Everybody can't be a rapper and the industry is even harder to make money because they no longer sell CDs and tapes. Right. So if they could take that same creative energy and put it in books and learn how to market their own books, you could be an entrepreneur at 12 years old. Mm-hmm. All you need is a laptop and a tablet. Because mm-hmm. you could also put the books in an e-file and people can download it on their phone. Right. What do you think it would take to get um, kids receptive that, to that kind of message, that that's the kind of future that you can have? Because something like being a rapper can be such an attractive lifestyle, yes. right? Because it's lucrative. It right? appears to be lucrative. It appears to be lucrative, yes. yeah. So how do you sell a message that there are other options out there besides being a celebrity of some kind? Someone, someone just has to stand up and do it first. Mm-hmm. And that person just needs a support structure. Mm-hmm. And when other children see it, it's an option. Yeah. Everyone sees the rapper... So they think that's what it is, and they're on the radio a lot. Once you generate the idea that you can be an author and write positive, mm-hmm. and someone does it first, and they get a little bit of exposure, everyone else will come along, but someone has to do it first. Mm-hmm. You said that you're a writer, right? Yes, I've You've done some books? I self-published four books. Okay. Can you tell us the names of your books and where, where our um, listeners might be able to access them? My books are on Amazon.com, mm-hmm. and they're also on, I have a Facebook fan page, mm-hmm. OTG Ministry. And I also, the first book is Deception of Freedom. The second one is The Lives We Live With. Mm-hmm. The third book is Light Ideas. And the fourth book is Loyalty, Fear, and God. Mm-hmm. And I also have more coming. Getting off that school bus and seeing this group here, that group there, mm-hmm. knowing when I go down this street, I'm going to have to fight somebody. If I don't, everybody's going to beat me up and punk me. Right. And... If I go along with them, I got to act hard, but don't say nothing or try to stay out of trouble when the police come. Right. If I go around everybody, you know, you know, you, there's, no, there's no way to explain that anxiety. Yeah. There's no right way to navigate that. No, it's not. Yeah. And then if you're the weak one, you, you question your manhood your whole life. Yep. Because I had several friends who did that. And back in the 90s, you know, being gay wasn't cool. Mm-hmm. But you still question your strength and your... What's the word? Significance mm-hmm. and your purpose, because you're supposed to be, a, you know, a man. Mm-hmm. But you're scared of the drug dealers and the big boys, right? Most of them guys join the military mm-hmm. just to get that pride back. Maybe overcompensate for it a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. But I stayed with them. I was like the perfect chameleon, because I could be with the nerds, the jocks, the drug dealers, the church boys. I hung with everybody, mm-hmm. which made me gifted, but it also made me fake, because I got lost in there. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is, it's kind of like they say, if you have holy water with 1% rat poison, you're still going to die. Hmm. I ended up dropping out going to jail because I was hanging with the wrong people, trying to fit in. Mm-hmm. But I also considered them my people because mm-hmm. they were in my neighborhood and black. Yeah. A couple of the crazy ones were white, too. <laughs> I grew up in Newport News. Everybody was crazy. Uh-huh. So my mother kept telling me, your loyalty is your curse because mm-hmm. you don't know how to say no. And she was right. Mm-hmm. I did a whole lot of dirt with my friends. Mm-hmm. But those are my people. Right. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. I think that that's um, part of what people forget when they talk about somebody like pulling themselves out of poverty yeah. or like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just creating a life for yourself. For a lot of folks that are immersed in that all the time, to choose something like going to college, for example, which could be a vehicle for upward economic mobility, you're also having to reject your friends, your family, your neighborhood, this area where yeah. you grew up in that even though if it was a, a challenging place, you might have a lot of affection for. Yeah. Right? So you have to cut out a life that you've built and a lot of capital that you've built up with the people in your life in order to pursue something else. Right? And so yeah. like you, what you were just saying about being in prison and being with folks that you felt like you belong there, it's, that's, that's a crazy thing to think about um, that being the easier route when you think about it socially. Yeah. Right? Than to go do something else that's more drastically different than. Because you what cut your off life from your people. Then you have another person telling you they're no good and they hate them. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, yo, I was with these guys every day. They just like me. 
Why right. can't all of us come? Finally, I had a chance to speak with Tony Volley, like volleyball. He was a former educator and had asked a question during our panel discussion about making sure that teachers had the support and training that they needed to work with students in high poverty and other challenging settings. The point he was making was that when teachers feel overwhelmed, it can contribute to the disparities and disciplinary referrals that we see with our students of color. Here's Tony. Your question really struck me. Um, the kinds of things that you were talking about, about um, not having teachers that are able to consistently being there or choosing to not consistently be there, right. and that creates this kind of chaos where there's not consistent fe- consistency for the But there's reasons for that. They're not just leaving for right. the sake of leaving. It's chaotic. Talk about it. Tell me about it's, it. It's, I mean, it's... It's almost like a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. So you can see a lot of behaviors and everything else. When you get to the middle school level, which, mm-hmm. and I think they kind of calmed down a little bit after that, but mm-hmm. you have all of that. Um, for one, the design of the school, you got a lot of different high-crime areas condensed together in one building. Mm-hmm. It has that um, domino effect. Mm-hmm. And a lot of teachers, they, they mean well, they want to stay, but they end up leaving, like I was one of them. Well, me, you know, I've been looking at this for a while. Like I said, I was a classic standout, so mm-hmm. was supposed to go to the governor's school. At that time, it was only two, space for two. Mm-hmm. Um, I got sent mm-hmm. to my zone school. So mm-hmm. I've seen this perpetual chaos for several decades of mm-hmm. it's just consistent problems going on. And I think it's because what are we teaching them? Okay, we know at home, a lot of data says a lot of their parents are locked up or dead or whatever else. So we're not teaching true citizenship at home like they should be. Mm-hmm. And what are we teaching in the school system? We have these specific set of, this is what the state mandates for us to teach, instead of teaching actual citizenship. We don't teach local law until about ninth grade. Mm. In a high crime mm-hmm. area, why are we not teaching local mm-hmm. law now? Why isn't trips to the jail and the law, you know, law and consequences, why isn't that content that should be required? If right. we want to deter all of this craziness, like they said, different classroom management, behavior strategies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Why not actually teach them that? So I think we need to have curriculum modifications. I think that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. We just stick with well, state mandates. We need to do this. So all we need to do is teach them all this content to pass the SOL. And mm-hmm. guess what? I was a part of that. Yep. Yeah. So I, I think that's what it is. We just, we see the problem, but, and we discuss it. We want to do something about it. We mm-hmm. talk about it amongst each other. But like I asked the forum, how much of this data is actually going to be practical mm-hmm. that we take in and say, this is where we see these problems. Why don't you make some modifications here and there? So, right. yeah. I don't um, think it's one fix. Mm-mm. I think it's multiple adjustments. There's so many different perspectives. You need a serious think tank. That's what I think. You need to actually know what's going on with that child. Mm-hmm. You need to really know what their strengths and weaknesses are. If they have any rare disabilities, um, the students, the educators, need to properly know. Mm-hmm. They need to properly know the um, the environment that they're serving and be willing to serve and not just throw up their hands. Yeah. But there are times when they, you know, the action does fit. But you want to make sure that's not your first result. It sure. should be a set of steps that you go through. And I think what needs to happen is, I, I think personally, like the environment, the school that I worked in which was a school that received another school that shut down. Mm -hmm. So we had a disproportionately high amount of people with disabilities that had not been documented. Mm -hmm. So Hmm. what what needs to happen is a lot of those teachers, I think they need an update. I think a lot of general ed teachers need an update on when to identify, is this clearly a behavior problem? Mm -hmm. Is this an actual disability like the, the speaker spoke of that this is a manifestation of this child's mm-hmm. disability the autism or they can't like they yeah. can't help some of these things this is their disability mm-hmm. they may need some medications or mm-hmm. academic supports for this or socioeconomically and I think you once again us as the administration as the the, the, the communities the school boards mm-hmm. we need to make those modifications for our specific areas my thanks to Kiara Lee, Zenobia Bay, Genevieve Siegel-Holly, Bill Muth, Gina Lyles, Rachel Dean, and Evandra Catherine for their willingness to share their perspectives for this important event. Thanks also to Adeta Ferris, Stephen Tucker, Sarah DeArmament, Brendan Dwyer, and Diane Simon, who I'm lucky to serve with on the Committee for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion as a sponsor for this event. We hope you'll check out Art 180, Performing Statistics, Just Children in the Hope House, and read the books written by our presenters and listen to their music and poetry. 
Most importantly, we hope that you'll join this critical conversation about racial disproportionality in school discipline, not just to talk about it, but to be an agent of change. Thanks as always to our director, Jesse Sinishal, and Kyle Yoga Muffin Red, who does our sound editing and is responsible for our awesome new theme music. You can check him out on SoundCloud. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues in education. You can stay up to date by subscribing on iTunes, checking us out on SoundCloud, or going to our website at merc.soe.vcu.edu. As always, this is David Naff. Thanks for the time. Let's talk again soon.